As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our latest batch of listener questions. Today we're discussing Christian Pulisic's World Cup prospects. We dig into player image rights and we see what would happen if Twitter picked the USMNT lineup. Oh boy. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who absolutely needs no introduction. But we'll give him one because I don't like awkward silences. Taylor Rockwell, hello. Hello. I was prepared to talk, but I appreciate the introduction all the same, Ryan Bailey. So I was wondering how big a pause I could leave there, and if, would it be like a Pavlov's dog thing where you just start talking? Uh, I would have. I think I would have, uh, because th- there are certain podcasts I like where they actively don't introduce the guest and just wait to see how long it will take for them to eventually jump into the conversation. So I would have just taken that baton. Of course, I would have then continued to talk and not stopped talking and proceeded talking without letting you come back into talking, and then it would have been a really ongoing introduction that probably would have bored people to death. Isn't that just your usual brand? <laughs> he went there. I, I was I was sort of trapped in the like. <laughs> I hope people understand that this rambling thing is part of the joke because otherwise it's just going to seem like my usual thing. And then Graham knocked it out the park. Thanks, Graham. <laughs> and that's all we have time for today, listener. All Thank right. you very much for joining us. <laughs> also joining us is a man who's uh, our resident kits and pies expert. You just heard him, Graham Rusman. Hello. Hello, Ryan Bailey. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, have you had any pies? Are you wearing any kits today, Graham? Uh, I haven't had a pie this hour, uh, and I am wearing <laughs> a, a Salford City uh, like jumper. Ooh. So does that count as a kit? I guess it does, in a, in a sense. I, yeah, I guess it does. I'm, I'm wearing Germany Away 2018. Are you allowed right. to do that? Uh, free country actually free I'm country? not sure after, what is this after after like school a free country <laughs> I can do what I want <laughs> I think there's been some elections here recently in Italy so I'm not sure if that's entirely the case but um, I, th- I believe I'm allowed to wear this shirt Graham yeah. okay fair enough <laughs> very good and rounding out our pack a man who's going to give us some strong USMNT takes today Arizona Joe Lowry hello hello Ryan this has been great so far Graham flaming both Taylor and Ryan this is just a great start to the show <laughs> Get him, Graham. Get him. <laughs> uh, that, Joe, Joe played that coy straight down the middle. There's very little to go out there. Good, good. That was my plan all along. 
Uh, listener, it, it might sound like we've all had a few beers with the looseness <laughs> with which, which kicking off this show, which leads nicely to a question we had uh, come in from JL Castro, who asked, what adult beverage are you planning to consume while you watch World Cup matches? Um, Taylor, hmm. what's your beverage of choice for a game? The the honest and lame answer is no alcoholic beverages because the way we cover these games, we watch every single one, and given that they're going to start very, very early, it will probably just be an almost lethal amount of coffee. Maybe there'll be some booze poured in there. I think if I if I am having a drink during a game, it tends to be uh, bourbon on the rocks or uh, henny on the rocks because uh, beer, I feel like it takes too long. It slows you down. Yeah. Uh, a little bit of whiskey will keep you going for sure. The, the pub in the village that I grew up in had a, or still has a forfeit drink called a jum. It's a shot of <laughs> gin mixed with a shot of rum and you have to down it in one go. Uh, maybe that will get us up in the morning. It'll be like the scene in Back to Future 3 when uh, Doc Brown has some wake-up juice and then we have to find a, a, a trough of water outside in Brooklyn. Hang on, what forfeits are people doing in this pub? What for? Uh, just, you know, drinking games sort of thing. You know, the usual <laughs> sort of... Sort of British binge drinking nonsense. <laughs> it's the Family Guy joke of let's play a game. It's called Drink the Beer. What do I win? Another beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, yeah, it's the same uh, as the game Steak in the uh, yeah. sitcom Scrubs. Yes. No. Yeah. yeah. Jum is a great drink if you want to destroy your life in one night. Yeah. I would highly recommend it. Okay. Um, I, I, my, also, my, my answer is also um, that I won't be drinking during the World Cup because we are working the World Cup, yeah. as we tend to do in this business. Uh, but uh, if, I'm, if there's a game I'm not working, I'll have a little bit of moonshine. Is what I'll do. Mm, yeah, that's what I like. Joe? Uh, you like, wait, Marshall. hold on, we're not, like, do you mean like the, like, branded bottled moonshine? Or are no, you like going out to the still? Yeah, let's Taylor, let's he did live it. in Charlotte, deep south, baby, come on. Yeah, you should see my bathtub right now, it's full to the brim. <laughs> yeah, Ryan's going to show up in Portland, in, in Portland, in Brooklyn with uh, a sack of potatoes over his shoulder <laughs> for his <laughs> moonshine. Right. Yeah, and I'll get in my NASCAR and bootleg across Ooh, the nation. South. Anyway. Yeah, indeed. Joe, any any drinking preferences, uh, alcoholic or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, during not not during games. I, notes are being taken too quickly for that stuff, unfortunately. Um, but during the live show that we're doing on November twentieth, I will certainly have a beverage or two. I'm I'm kind of interested in having you guys suggest a few different things for me. I'm not the biggest alcoholic beverage jump. guy. Yeah, jump. jump. I think yeah, Graham's jump. already done that jump. for us, so maybe that's the answer. I'm at the moment. I am more of like a hard cider, a hard. Just anything that tastes remotely like juice, but it's still alcoholic, I suppose, that that's the sweet spot for me. I'm Joe, fine with a lot of other beverages, but mostly the stuff that makes me think like I'm just drinking soda or, or apple juice of some kind. Joe, there's this really good liquor you should definitely try. It's called Malort. Everybody in Chicago yeah, I've loves heard really, it. I've heard it's have, super tame. Just sip on it. It's really, really, really nice. Yeah, it's nice really and mellow. smooth. Yeah. Doesn't heard, it heard all, all taste like floor cleaner and make you wake up in a different state the next morning? I've heard Go it's it. gasoline, but the yummy kind. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> that's moonshine. Oh, there yeah. you go. Okay, my bad. <laughs> Gasoline for the yummy cake. Come to our live show, people. November twentieth. Maybe yeah. you'll get to see Taylor make me drink. Mal- That's a weird pitch. I, I don't know. Where I don't know where we're going here. But either way, yeah. we would love to see you all there. Maybe I will. In fact, you know what? Joe has just volunteered. Joe's going to do a shot of Malort at our live show. Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> From a shoe. From a shoe is what's going to happen there. From a shoe. Uh, Littlefield, Brooklyn, November 20th, as Joe mentioned there. Uh, ticket link in the description if you'd like to come and see us be utterly hilarious like we are right now <laughs> and talk about the uh, World Cup. Uh, this one happening on the eve of the opening game. We'd love to see you there in New York. Please join us. But for now, let's get to the rest of our listener questions. We'll start off with Shreyas Romani, who has got in touch to say, 
Who is the most notable outfield player to have never scored a goal for either club or country? And this question, says Shreyas, is definitely not related to Nuhu in any way whatsoever. Ryan. Uh, great. Uh, before, Graham, you, the, before you go to go Graham, on. I have to jump in here for a moment. I just need to say, there there are answers to this one. I warned you all beforehand I was going to rant about one of these questions. I just have to say, great question from Shreyas. Phenomenal, Editors, yeah. title your listicles correctly. The number of, of articles I read last night trying to answer this one that were like, players who never scored goals, and then it would be, played 400 appearances, made 400 appearances, and only scored six goals. It's like, well, then he still <laughs> scored. Never doesn't mean six, people. So many listicles saying they never scored, and then they had nine of the ten had scored goals. Did not help me, uh, but I did love this question. End of rant. Also, also, sorry to cut in quickly. Nuhu has since scored, I'm assuming, since Shreyas asked this question. So Nuhu is not an acceptable answer to this question. Uh, Please continue. Shreyas, am I going to have to be mad at you for also not understanding what never (laughs) means? I don't know. I don't know. I'm guessing that's on us for not answering the question in a timely manner. But yes, continue. So, yeah, question not answered in a timely manner. Uh, Lots of children on Taylor's lawn, which he'd like them to get off of. Let's go to Graham for this one. Uh, I, I think instantly, Graham... Of Tony Hibbert yes. uh, as being the big example. 256 games for Everton, 18 seasons, and famously Everton had a banner that said, if Hibbert scores, we riot. Yeah. There was no riot. No, and, and that that's my answer. I could I honestly couldn't find anyone who so I went through down a few dead alleys. So I thought I had a good one in Danny Simpson. He he won a, a yep. Premier League title with Leicester and he played for Manchester United, but he scored one goal in a loan spell for for uh, Newcastle United, so that scuppered his candidacy. I thought I'd found a really good one in Eric Abidal, who's obviously uh, was a world-class player, key player for Barcelona over a number of seasons, won everything, La Liga, the Champions League, he played in the World Cup final in 2006, um, and he never scored a league goal, and obviously he played a, a, a large number of league games, but he did score a couple of Copa del Rey goals for Barcelona, so that one doesn't count either. What? So in the modern age, there was a, there was a couple of guys from decades ago that I, I had frankly never heard about. When I say decades ago, I'm talking like the 20s and 30s and 40s. There was a few names. But in terms of the modern age, Tony Hibbert was the, the only guy that I could find. 265 appearances in the Premier League over 16 years. He registered eight assists. He hit the woodwork once, but never managed to uh, actually score a goal. So, poor Tony Hibbert. Graham, I can't believe you've done this uh, because I had Eric Abadal as one of my players who never did. Wikipedia has lied to me. I didn't know it would ever do that. I can't believe the internet has misinformed. But you're <laughs> right. Two goals for Eric Abadal in the Copa del Rey. My whole world is shattered. Yeah, that was me last night. I thought I had it, and then I didn't. All right, so Taylor, anyone else besides the doctor from The Simpsons then on the list? <laughs> it's just Dr. Hibbert, that's it. And uh, Ryan, I appreciate The Simpsons reference because initially my, my rant was going to be if you call it players who never scored and then they scored 11 goals, uh, that's a paddling. So there you go. There's my Simpsons reference for you. Now, I mean, there's a lot of like players who came close. Des Walker was another one who had one goal in his entire career, but that's not no goals. So yeah, I think it's a bunch of people from... Uh, eras that I don't know much about or can't really understand from like, yeah, like he did in the 1930s. Like, all right, that sounds great. But yeah, Tony Hibbert was the only one, I think, from the modern era now that I know that Eric Abadal has betrayed yeah. me. My, my takeaway here is that if I could just find a team willing to give me 200, 300, maybe 400 <laughs> games at professional level, I would I would score one goal as my main takeaway. 
<laughs> um, Joe, I'm going to petition for Manuel Neuer to be counted as an outfield player. He spends a lot of yeah. time outside the box. I think I'll, I'm going to take that one. Has yeah, he let's, not scored? Let's put Neuer and Ederson so. on this list as well as honorary outfieldees. I think that's the way. Because I didn't find anything else, right? I had Eric Abidal initially as well. He has not actually fulfilled the criteria. Unfortunately, Wikipedia lied to us and Transfer Market was the only one we could trust. Uh, Tony Hibbert and then I also have Frank Womack who played 500 career games, more than 500 in England as an outfield player, never scored a goal. I believe he had 491 appearances for Birmingham. This is like early 20th century as well. And at least as of 2007, which is when the Wikipedia article I was reading cited this record, he held the most, uh, he held the record for most games without scoring uh, at club level. So maybe I, I would imagine that record still stands. This was a tough question to find. And uh, along with everyone else, when Eric Abidal was taken off the board, my life got a lot harder. <laughs> yeah. And Taylor, to answer your question, I don't think Neuer has scored. He I should not. probably look into it a bit more. But I know he, he goes, he's gone up for a few corners, including one this season. But uh, I don't think he has scored. Yeah, yet. I think that makes him an outfield player. Get it together, yeah. Manuel Neuer. You're on the list. Honorable mention for <laughs> Manuel Neuer, but Tony Hibbert, I guess, is our champion. Maybe Byron aren't going to win the title after all. Neuer can't get on the score sheet. Golly. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I hope we haven't made Tony Hibbert feel bad being... The solitary member of this list. Um, <laughs> do you think? Do you think he just gets an alert? Do you think somewhere he's seated, like they're talking about me right now? They know yeah. I haven't scored. Yeah, some, somewhere he's very sad. Oh, forty-one-year-old Tony here, but we're sorry. But hey, you had a good run. Let's go to another question here from Russell Varner, Charlotte's our very own Russell Varner, I believe. Hello, Russell. Um, which of the following do you consider to be more prestigious? Uh, so Russell's given us a few either-ors here. So I'm going to go through them one at a time. So which is more prestigious, Taylor? The Premier League title or the World Cup? World Cup. Graham? Yeah, World Cup. World Cup, Jack? Yep. Okay. Um, international manager or manager of a top five European team? Which is more prestigious? So, so before we get to answers, I need a clarification on this. Are we talking about the manager of a team in a big five European league or the yep. manager of a European team in the top five of their league? Because that's I think different. it means... A- I think it means a, a top five domestic European team. Oh, that's such a broad... Wait, I didn't understand. So, Ryan, sorry, to reiterate Graham's question. Top five in the Premier League, La Liga, Liga, whatever, yeah. or top the entire league. league? Okay. So, Bayern to Bochum, Joe. Bayern to right. Bochum. Okay. That changes yeah. my calculation yeah. considerably. Does it really? Yeah, okay. 100%. I mean, yeah, but the international manager could be the U.S. or Guam. Like, So, I, I think there's still that range there, too. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, because no like if, we, if, to... if like Barcelona is if we're saying the club the the, Europe, the top five European team could be Barcelona and the international manager could be like Liechtenstein manager. Sorry, Liechtenstein, it's not personal. That's a great get job. It's a great I've job. I've done this Graham. before, Graham. I've learned this that you will get emails. We got multiple emails from people from <laughs> Liechtenstein the last time I mocked them. Oh no. Okay, sorry. <laughs> is that, tr- is that true? <laughs> what is that actually true, Taylor? <laughs> yes. Oh my god. I mean, like oh, friend, friendly, friendly, tongue in cheek. How sure. dare you? While also. Listening like okay we're the like in the like we're the most uh, important exporter of potassium kazakhstan style like mocking yes <laughs> right. so right. friendly friendly okay. good natured ones okay. but they're listening graham they're out there got okay ears. i was i wasn't aware of our Liechtenstein <laughs> audience apparently they're all they'll all be in brooklyn for the world cup <laughs> it will. seems um to hunt us down they so let's jump. say they love yeah, jump graham they love jump let's say andorra right so andorra sorry andorra do we have an audience in andorra we're gonna if find it's barcelona out versus, if it's barcelona versus andorra then obviously the most prestigious is andorra no i'm kidding barcelona as the more prestigious so yeah that well, distinction so why, is important make, make it fair and do it like for like a top a very top team from each okay, category okay. so they're comparable how about that 
Okay, Graham. so if it's Graham. again, this is this is difficult depending on the league. So <laughs> if it's a Premier League top five team, I would say the Premier League team is more prestigious than basically any okay. international manager's job. But if we're going to France, and you might have uh, even I guess Monaco, which is you know they're they're traditionally successful team in France, I would say some international jobs are. This is a rubbish answer. I can't I can't give a yes or no on this one. It really depends on the teams involved. Yeah, that was a rubbish answer. <laughs> Taylor, uh, club. Okay, uh, Joe. I, I'll go club as well, but I sympathize, Graham, with your difficulty in choosing because I don't really know that that's my true answer, but I'm saying it anyway. I have no okay. sympathies for cowardice. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, by the way, I think I'm saying club there, and I think I would say also World Cup for the first question. One last one before we go more generally into the idea of this question of prestige. Uh, MLS Supporters Shield or MLS Cup? Which is more prestigious, Joe Lowry? Shield, 100%. Ooh. Taylor? Uh, could not disagree more. Cup. Boo. Tying vote, Graham? Yeah, cup. So I think winning the Shield is a greater sporting achievement, and it's probably a better gauge of the quality of a team. But come on, MLS Cup still has the greater prestige. I mean, MLS Cup is an event that can make a manager strip off on the pitch. Joe is still haunted by Ronnie Dyla strip (laughs) show in Portland. That is true. (laughs) Guys, we get to decide what's more prestigious. Like, we're part of the people, I'm, I'm thankful for this, that get to decide what we give our attention to and give our energy to. We can help decide what should have the prestige. Graham, you just said that Supporter Shield is harder and more emblematic of a team's actual quality. So why are we giving MLS Cup the respect that Supporter Shield deserves? I genuinely, like, I don't understand. Eh, because knockout football's fun, and I like it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think um, what, I hate what, this so the much. point I would make with all three of these questions that Russell's posed here is that there's a difference between what is prestigious and what is better. So the World Cup has more prestige than the Premier League title, but the Premier League title is better because it's better quality and, you know, it's, uh, it's yeah, harder for it. It's 38 right. games. I think, so I think it's better, the Premier League title, but, but the World Cup inarguably has more prestige. And I'll say the same thing about the Supporters Shield. Harder to achieve and, you know, it's not, it's not a knockout contest. And it's, it's done over 34 games. So it's better, but not as prestigious as literally lifting the big thing at the end of the postseason, yeah, is that so? Is it's that it's just around? about the shiny metal object. We can just yeah. give, we can just yeah. give the team who's going to lift the shield a giant shield to to lift after they. I mean, this problem is so easily solved. I can't. Don't they have one? Don't they? Yeah, get they a do, but I, I right. don't think it's. Uh, <laughs> I don't think LAFC got to lift the shield this past weekend when they won because they weren't guaranteed. Like things could have happened such that they would not have won the shield on on Sunday. So I don't actually know what happened there for sure, but I don't Joe, think, I think they you're making the argument for why it's not. But as but my point right is my point is it, it, my point is we can actually shift the perception. We can, we can mm-hmm. start making the shield the more prestigious object here. This is not like this instrument. Well, this is just the way it is. We can flip yeah. the script. It's not impossible to do that. Yeah, uh, can I ask you? Can I ask you then, t- sincerely? Like, I would love for you to do that because if I'm being completely honest, <laughs> I understand sincerely. So I, I really Joe. want to know. <laughs> yeah, like, this I, is on me. Sorry, guys. Like, it's just hard for me to to say, like, I understand what the Supporter Shield means to the actual supporters. I love that they get to to hold it, that they carry it around to the conventions. Uh, and I know that it's supposed to signify this sort of season-long accomplishment. But then when you then have playoffs, and it almost feels like an albatross when the team that wins the, the, the Supporter Shield very often does not win MLS Cup, it becomes a, well, you were good, but you weren't good enough to win this thing that came later. And when that thing comes after and then is the concluding event, it just feels like you can't really say the thing that came before 
is as prestigious or is as big. You, but I would love to hear why, because I would love to believe your argument. My answer is you can. Like, you, you can totally say that, right? You just have to realize that playoffs are this inherently random and kind of silly thing in soccer when the margins of error are so ridiculously small to not really tell us who the best team... I mean, think back to last summer. I always like to, to point this example out, last playoffs. RSL beating the Seattle Sounders after taking zero shots. Zero up until penalty kicks. And we do we really think that RSL is a better team or was a better team last year than Seattle? No, of course not, right? Playoffs are not always emblematic of the quality of a team. The reason why I picked World Cup over the Premier League is because the World Cup only happens every four years. And it spans this cross-continental divide that the Premier League does not. Winning the Premier League is more emblematic, as Ryan said, of, of a good team. The World Cup has something special. MLS Cup is special, but it's every year. And it's the same teams who are competing in the regular season who got shown up by the team who wins the Supporter Shield. So, yeah, I guess my my response to that, Taylor, is you you can say that Supporter Shield is more prestigious. You just actually have to say that and then do it. So, Joe, if someone was to ask you, ask you who won MLS last year, what's what's your answer to that? NYCFC won MLS Cup, ah, and no. the New England Revolution <laughs> yeah. won the Supporter Shield. <laughs> And uh, that makes Joe Grant. in the three percent of people who would answer that question. That I'm way. just saying I don't disagree <laughs> that people I don't disagree that people see this differently than I do. I, I understand people see it differently. My point is that that we should try to change the perception because it is much better to see your team win soccer games every single week and lift a piece of trophy, lift a piece of silverware at the end, than it is to see them go on some weird run that's not really emblematic of how good they are after being mediocre in the that, regular season. There's a genuine question. Is there a supporter shield sort of trophy in the NFL? Like, is, is, is that no. something that's given no. to teams in the NFL? Yeah, it's a right, this okay. is a foreign idea, right, to a lot of American sports fans. And my again, my point is we should try to make it a little less foreign along the way. Okay, if that, only there that was some like, my next point, which was going to be, well, you watch the Super Bowl, Joe, don't you? But that doesn't really uh, work <laughs> if there's not a supporter shield in the NFL. I just wish there was some sort of season-long like knockout competition that would happen concurrently with the MLS season that would maybe involve like every American and like team, and then you could sort of have that knockout competition at the Leagues same Cup. time as your regular season. If only there were a way to make that happen. Oh, wait, it's the U.S. Open Cup, and uh, people don't talk about it. I love the U.S. Open Cup. It's great. You're the Shiny. one. Shiny trophy. You yeah. you in Orlando. You in yeah, Orlando. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Spy time, baby. All Pe- right, people well, not laughing at that prove my point that people aren't <laughs> watching US Open Cup. I just want to make that argument right there. We need to congratulate Russell who sent the question here because it's very rare that this room is divided. And uh, this question has succeeded in doing so. So well done, Russell. And uh, to answer your question, Graham, um, the winner of MLS is really the friends we made along the way. Amen. Of course, yeah. It's Charlotte FC, of course. Yeah. The true winner. Indeed. (laughs) All right, let's part that one there. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, some USMNT questions. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Uh, Cam Tate has got in touch and asked, is there a possibility that in the USMNT's first game at the World Cup, our starting wingers are Aronson and Rayner, leaving Mr Pulisic on the bench? Ooh, Joe, where do you stand on this one? I honestly think there is 0% chance that that happens. Okay, I, yep. I won't say 0, I'll say 1% chance. I, I just cannot imagine Christian Pulisic not starting that game. Now, I think there is an argument that he should not start at that game against Wales on November 21st, but I, I think he will. So there's a number of different things that go into this. Gio Reyna, is he going to be healthy? Is Greg Barother going to go out there and, and start him after he starts him in, in September and ends up getting hurt? I kind of doubt it. So I don't think Gio Reyna is going to start. And if Brendan Aronson could really help you break down a defensive block, like we're going to see from Wales, he might start, but he can't. And we kind of have seen that happen throughout his U.S. career and his club career as well. He's never been asked to do that really at club level. But, but given Pulisic's role, as I said, and his status in this team and those other two factors with Reyna and Aronson that I, I just went through, I'll be shocked if Pulisic, barring injury, which is a real possibility here as well, I should add, I'll be shocked if he doesn't start. And, and even if he does start on one side, I think it should probably be Tim Weah on the other side. Injury prone as well, but he'll be healthy, or at least based off his current injury timeline, he should be healthy by the time the World Cup comes around. I think we'll see Christian Pulisic on one side, and I hope we see Tim Weah on the other. Yeah. I'm I'm not even sure if um if Aronson and, and Reyna are in sparkling form and are fully fit by the time the World Cup kicks off. I'm not even sure from a tactical point of view that you would maybe want them on, on the wings. And and I'm kind of repeating a point that we made um on one of our, our shows last week after the two US um games against Saudi Arabia and Japan. But one of the conclusions that we draw drew from the game against Japan in particular is that if Beralter's using Ferreira as his as his number nine, you need some form of verticality from from the wide men, otherwise it makes it too easy for the US to be pinched and for opposition teams to make it congested in the middle. Pulisic, he can offer that verticality. Verticality, Weah can offer that as well, but Aronson and, and Reyna, very good players, but neither of them really do that. So I'm, I'm not saying Aronson and Reyna can't play together. Maybe Aronson is, is one of the midfielders, or I guess Reyna could be one of the midfielders as well. But um, as wingers with Freire as the nine, which seems likely at this point, I, I, I don't think Aronson and Reyna works very well in those wide positions. Taylor, any thoughts on this one? I think uh, Joe and Graham have done a really good job. I, I would agree with everything they've said. The only thing I would add in thinking about this question, I think my, my current theory, would love to know if people agree or disagree, is basically that Greg Berhalter strikes me as a, a the type of coach who genuinely values a depth chart. And I think there are there are coaches who assemble a squad and then it's sort of, let's see who does the best in this camp. And then that will carry over. But I, I don't know if they keep it so much a who's number one, who's number two, who's number three. And I think that is sort of the way Burhalter approaches these things. And so I think when you move somebody in that depth chart, that has resonance, that has staying power. I think it's why we still have the kind of Slight concern that maybe it's Zach Steffen as the number one instead of Matt Turner because he s tends to value that sort of way of uh, approaching players, in my opinion. And so I think Pulisic, I agree, sh short of him being injured or in like just absolutely can't even kick a ball form, I think he's going to be a starter because it means having to change the structure of the team and the kind of appearance of that team. And I'm not sure that's a thing that Berhalter wants to do at this point. Is it Taylor an indictment of the program that we're having this conversation about Pulisic, him being someone one would respect to be an impact player in this team? No, I don't think so. I think it's it, it's a reminder that moving to a bigger club for a lot of money isn't always the greener pasture it might seem. And I think there's an ar argument, there's a reality in which if Pulisic had stayed at Dortmund or moved to a club where he was 
going to be played in a position he's comfortable with on a consistent basis that he would continue to develop and and have the confidence that I think he needs to be the player he can be when he's short of that confidence or feeling like he's not valued. I think you can see the opposite be the case, and I think that's where he is right now. So I think there's ways in which Berhalter could probably get more out of Pulisic or get better out of him, but I think with the other issues in the team and the other problems he's trying to solve, I think he sees Pulisic as more of a set-it-and-forget-it starter and trusts him to find the form when he needs to. All right, then. Thank you very much, Camp, for that question. Let's move to one from Joey Dolowski, who says, if the USA was going to pick a roster based on USMNT Twitter's demands, what would the style be that best suited the player pool? Uh, for example, starting Jordan Peefer, getting Brooks or Ream in there, etc., and so on. What would that style be, and how does it differ to what Mr. Berhalter does, Taylor Rockwell. I imagine it differs wildly. Now, are we answering this question based on Twitter this week or last week or next week? Because it seems to change. Because, like, I, I only say that not to take shots because I know people care about this team. I know people really want them to do well and have strong opinions on players. But I just got to say, like, a month ago, I floated the idea that Tim Ream should be on this team and was sort of like, are you kidding me? Tim Ream's so old. He's so slow. And that now the prevailing opinion is Tim Ream is the difference maker. It feels like every camp we have a new player who's not caught up who is now the most valued player that people want to see. And I think sometimes that's fair. I think PFOC should have been called into this camp, but I think also sometimes it's just who's the player that wasn't there that might be able to make the difference, and I understand that inclination too. Uh, With that in mind, I would say like the one that would probably work the best is a 4-1-4-1, and that gets gets the personnel into the positions people want. But I think based on questions we've gotten historically, I think people love a back three. I think people love wing backs. So I'm going to say Twitter wants a 3-5-2. They want Matt Turner in goal. They want Chris Richards, John Brooks, and Tim Ream as your center backs. They want Serginho Dest and Jedi Robinson as your wing backs. They want Tyler Adams, Brendan Aronson, and Eunice Musa as your three midfielders. And they want Jordan Pifak and, uh, and Giovanni Reina up top. I almost said Claudio Reina, which would have been a step too far. But that's my, my 3-5-2 of That's Twitter. what Twitter wants. Claudio Reina. Make it happen. <laughs> Get him in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Taylor, that sounds pretty good to me. Am I, am I, am I drinking the Twitter Kool-Aid <laughs> a little bit too much? No, I mean, that's, that's the thing. That's why that sort of stuff appeals. That's why it's really fun to look at what could happen. And that's why I don't like, hate those questions. I feel like I'm being very negative. And I don't mean to be because I get why people want that. They want to think, what could make it better? How could we be better? Would this unlock the team and, and help them achieve their potential? And the answer to that is always maybe. Maybe this would make them better. Maybe they would look better. But there's also that possibility that you – bring in a bunch of individuals and don't have the time to really instruct them on what you want them to do, the nuances of this uh, of the system, you put them out there and maybe they look like a series of individuals and not a collective unit. You don't know who would totally shine or understand their assignments. You don't know who is a system player or more of a system player versus who can sort of improvise and think on their feet. And so I think there's always an appeal from the outside, and I would include myself as being an outsider when it comes to looking at a team, looking at the the pool, and then assembling an 11 that, like, that could totally work. It would work in FIFA. But I think when it comes to the man management, the in-game changes, the in-game analysis, I think only the people who are on the ground, rightly or wrongly, can make those decisions. So I, I think that's where I, I get a little bit more uncomfortable being like, this would solve it, this would make the difference. All right. Um, Joe, I, I tend to think that soccer Twitter, let alone USMNT Twitter, is a bit like an MK Dons fan. It shouldn't be listened to under any circumstances. <laughs> but how do you feel about it? Um, I don't really have much to say about whether or not we should listen to Twitter. I, I do have something to say about players that I think would likely be in this team based off Twitter's demands. I 
I guess at least my timeline is generally not quite as chaotic maybe as Taylor's is. The three players that I thought would maybe break in based off of Twitter's desire are the three players that Joey mentions in his question. So it's Brooks, Reem, and, and Pfock. So I, I just plugged those three players into the 4-3-3 that we've seen Peralta use. So it's Turner and goal, Serginho Dest and Jedi Robinson as the fullbacks with John Brooks and Tim Ream in the middle of that back line. Then it's Adams, Musa McKenney in midfield. I think people like the MMA midfield. I think people are okay with that. And then Reyna on one side, Pulisic on the other, and Pifak as the number nine. So it's same that, that same 4-3-3 shape. The reason why, or some of the things that change, let me put it this way, about this this team with this personnel grouping is there's going to be a lot less pressing. And I think this is a big part of why we don't see players like Tim Ream get a bunch of minutes for the U.S. at this point. And we don't see players like Jordan Pifak really involved. I know we talk a lot about what Pifak changes in the attack, and that is part of it, and I'll get to that in a second. But you also sacrifice high-pressing ability with Jordan Pifak as the nine over someone like Josh Sargent or Jesus Ferreira. Baralter likes that. He's called that out specifically in the past. You can't press in the same way that the U.S. try to press with Pifak leading the line and with Brooks and Ream anchoring. They just don't have the foot speed. They don't have the quickness. They don't have the acceleration to do that stuff at the same level. So if we saw this lineup, we're going back. The U.S. is going back to the mid-block that we saw back in 2019. I think that's their most reliable method of defense with that personnel grouping. Uh, then you look at the attack. There's going to be a lot more circulation. You immediately upgrade your on-ball ability at center back by a large amount. So quality buildup in the U.S. is third. Likely a winger maybe dropping in or a fullback tucking inside instead of the number nine dropping because Pifak's not going to do that stuff. He's going to stay high and be your outlet, occasionally dropping a few yards, but not a Jesus Ferreira amount. And then you get into the attack and it's going to be a lot more crosses because Jordan Pifak is tall and good at getting the ball in the back of the net when you kind of serve it up around him in that area. He's not really going to contribute in a lot of other areas in the attack, and that's that's fine. You can write, you can make that work, and part of how you make that work after the pressing tweaks and after the build-up changes is with a few more crosses in the attacking third, or at least more effective yeah. ones, because we did see the U.S. cross the ball quite a bit back in September. Got to say, Joe has done a great job of sort of showing the, the beauty of assembling a theoretical roster at a theoretical starting 11, of putting these players together and looking at how they might be better, how they might be more capable of performing in certain ways, but also what some of the drawbacks might be. And I think there's an extreme amount of value to that. I think that's such an interesting and important thing to do when it comes to the discourse around the national team. And I don't think I made this point succinctly, so I will try to now. I think the difference for me is that Joe sort of ended that with like, here's what might work, here's what might not work. It could be really interesting to see. And I feel like so often it ends with, Burhalter's an idiot. Why doesn't he do this? They're so stupid. And I think right there is where I'm just like, see, that's where you lose me. Because you don't, you don't know this for sure. You have ideas, and ideas are great. But insisting that your ideas would solve everything and are 100% correct is the sort of thinking on the opposite side that you are frustrated with with Greg Berhalter. So to me, I think it's great to have these conversations and to like ponder what might work and what might not work. I just get frustrated with some of the way that conversation tends to kind of yeah. spill over into ad hominem attacks. I don't disagree, Taylor. I think part of the reason for some of that frustration is, is people feel like Berhalter hasn't tried enough things. So I think yeah. back to, to 2019 and even 2020 when we were seeing Will Trapp and Jackson Ewell and Michael Bradley as the six. And it felt like it took so long to see other players like James Sands or just other, other options in midfield. I'm not saying James Sands is the savior of this U.S. team. But folks, I think, were miffed about that and, and now in a similar way are maybe a little bit miffed about not seeing Jordan Pifak for a lot of minutes or are miffed about not seeing Tim Ream brought back in to see if he can change this team a little bit. So I don't... I don't disagree. I think a lot of folks do tend to take it all the way to the, wow, this would solve everything, end of the spectrum, which is not, just almost certainly not true, given where this U.S. team is with their player pool and the talent in this team. But I also think there is some 
understandable frustration that folks have with not enough experimentation, maybe, or not enough willingness to, to shift, to adapt, to see if there might be something out there that really could elevate this team. Anything to add, G-Money? No, my, my notes were pretty much covered by, by Joe, who kind of took a similar approach of dropping those three players into the, into the current system. The only thing I would add is, um, so Ream doesn't really have much in, in the way of recovery pace, so perhaps that the high line that the US like to play doesn't doesn't work all that well. So maybe you have a, a low block, but Brooks getting the ball moving in quick transition to get it forward. The US would maybe be, be more of a, a slightly more direct team. And I don't mean, mean that in terms of being a long ball team. I mean, in terms of getting into attacking areas more quickly and, and making good use, uses of crosses into the middle for PFOC. But I think Joe pretty much covered all bases. All right. Thank you very much, Joey, for that question. Let's take a very quick break and we'll return with a few more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Let's go to one from Cigar Surmajiri, who asks, what is included in a professional player's image rights? What is the type of money we're looking at for someone like Mbappe or Messi and so on? What about someone not in that tier of player? For example, Tyler Adams with Leeds. What type of image rights would he have in his contract? Now, this one is quite a complex one. Then there's some legal stuff going on here and some ongoing legal stuff going on here, Graham. Um, But image rights, they're something that often is a deal breaker in transfer Mm. negotiations. Um, Give us the lay of the land, please. Yeah, so image rights is becoming much more of a talking point around players in in the modern age of of soccer. So traditionally, clubs would, stating the obvious here, but pay their players to play soccer. Um, But over, over the decades, that relationship between the player and the club has become a bit more complex, certainly at the the top level of the sport, and clubs are obviously brands now, and players are brands in their own right as well. So clubs at the top level, they have commercial partnerships with other brands, and they use players in promotions, like Wayne Rooney doing an advert for Manchester United's official wine a few years ago. The problem (laughs) for clubs is that players are now arguing that they should be compensated for their names and faces being used in those promotions that they are obligated to do. For their employers, so recently we had a, a case with um, Kylian Mbappe who refused to do a, a, a commercial for, I believe it was for KFC, who have a, a deal with the French national team. Mbappe and his represent, uh, rep, uh, representation said that basically because he's not getting paid by KFC, he shouldn't have to do the promotion. And so there's 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 a there's a conflict there and it's a growing conflict and um, to to to. To kind of explain it from the player's point of view, if you are Cristiano Ronaldo and you're the most marketable player in the world, then maybe you have an objection with Manchester United's official Asian tractor provider or whatever being able to use Ronaldo in their promotions without actually paying uh, Ronaldo. And increasingly, this means that clubs are are um, they're having to have deals in place with their best players in particular, which con- concerns their image rights. Um, and sometimes it can be even more complicated than that. So Paulo Dybala, for example, he sold his image rights to a third party. Now, in terms of uh, Cigar's question of what a player can expect to get, 
I found that very difficult to find out kind of what yep. players are, are selling their, their player rights for. The 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 sum that I could get with Dybala was a six figure sum in Euros. Now that could be you know, that that, that could be a hundred thousand uh euros or it, you know, it could be all the way up to up to a million. So I, I'm I'm not entirely sure how I would address that part of the question, but it seems like they are very lucrative. And actually with Dybala, when Tottenham tried to sign him a couple of years ago, he, he as I say, he'd sold his, his image rights to a third party. The deal was so complicated that because of those image uh, rights arrangements, Spurs walked away from the deal entirely. They just felt it wasn't worth it. The, de- the contract was going to be too complicated. So it is certainly more of a consideration. There's also this growing... Um, evolution in player image rights, which is is um, I think could be pretty transformational for the sport. It concerns the collection of data, and this is something I'm keeping an, a very close eye on, given my uh, you know fantasy football links. So players are now arguing that when a company like Opta or Sport Radar or Genius Sports, any of these data collection companies, when they collect data about matches, that they should pay the players because. They're arguing that the data belongs to them. And that obviously has huge potential to reshape how we consume football, not just in terms of st- statistical collections, those companies that I mentioned, but also games like FIFA and fantasy football games and so on. So th- that's that's um, image rights has been a talking point for a number of years, and it's now going into this, this, this data realm, which is the thing that I, I really think could have a, a big impact on the sport. Graham, do you know, just so you know that you're not alone, do you know who else is having a hard time figuring out the exact uh, value of these image rights deals that are happening? <laughs> I feel like you're going to name a player or a club is it, here. Is it all I'm, the clubs? I'm going to name uh, all the tax authorities because I think it is <laughs> deliberately vague and deliberately maybe not disclosed because players uh, are incentivized to have their own corporations and then they can file uh, for like at a, at a discounted rate for taxation. That issue aside, I think uh, Graham has done a great job of laying everything out. Uh, to go back to like the, the way it seems to operate in the more modern era, because, yeah, originally it's just we sign you, you play. Then you have sponsors. You want your player to go do some sort of event or marketing promotional materials for them. So then there are these provisions that are very, I think, basic is the way to put it, uh, so that there's some provisions in there for you have to do some marketing appearances. You have to do some uh, sort of uh, commercial side of things for the club. But – Oftentimes, those sponsors are going to want the biggest names, the Harry Canes or Ronaldo's or whoever it may be. And so then those contracts don't cover that because now you're having to go above and beyond. You're asking extra of them. That's where you have to have those secondary contracts, usually with the player's company that they have formed that protects all of their image rights. And that's where those deals can get really, really complicated, not just on a standard transfer where a player wants more in the case of Kylian Mbappe or wants more control, but as Graham already laid out in the case of Paulo Dybala, if they have existing deals, then you're going to have conflict. This was also the case, I think, with Jose Mourinho when he signed for Manchester United, that he had uh, a watch sponsorship that yeah. co- that was in conflict with theirs, and I think he has a deal with Jaguar that obviously Chevy were not thrilled about. So you have to kind of navigate those things. And sometimes the the player, the manager has to budge. Sometimes the club will. Uh, but th- that's sort of where it starts and how it's evolved. And now we get into the, how does FIFA play a part in this? How does data collection play a part in this? It's really fascinating. And I have sympathy for the players in some ways. And I also think, uh, read your contracts in other ways. Yeah, I think, I think Mourinho at Spurs, so they're obviously a, a Nike team and Mourinho has a deal with, 
he has a deal with, a, I think it's like a Adidas leisure wear, which is kind of different from Adidas. So he was fine wearing the like the training gear, but Spurs would uh, ask their managers or staff to wear like Nike leisure wear in interviews. And so it, it, it was in Mourinho's contract that basically he didn't have to do that. And if you go back and look at the interviews he would give, he would, he would never have uh, anything Nike on in those interviews because of his deal with Adidas. So it's just one of these things in the modern age that like decades ago would never have been a consideration, but it's is something that is causing a bit of a problem now. Yeah, it's very interesting. It, it does feel like it's quite a big additional income stream for a lot of players. As uh, but we don't, as you, as we say, um, those figures generally aren't disclosed. I think Graham, it's troubling the the ongoing uh, difficulties with data and player mm. image rights because, as you mentioned, it could affect fantasy football. It could affect it could affect the FIFA, uh, EA Sports games. Players not wanting to have their images there. And I think also, where does it stop? If someone like Sport Radar or these data providers, uh, players get a piece of their action, then does that extend to if the streaming of the games is data as well? Technically, yeah. I mean, do they start taking a piece of broadcast as well? Where does it end? I think is mm. my question. So- so the first thing, my disclaimer right at the top of this is that I have a vested interest in this discussion, and so I am biased <laughs> in, in, in my opinion on this because my company, if players start demanding uh, being paid for data, I'm, I'm not sure we'll survive, uh, is, is, the, is the truth of the matter. So, um, But yes, I, I take your point. It's difficult to know. For instance, like a goal, I guess, is... Uh, is is some form of data in soccer obviously it's it's kind of the the crudest purest data in football so if someone on the news or or on a broadcast or whatever talks about a player scoring a goal or or is is that going to be covered by image rights of a player yeah it it feels kind of like opening Pandora's box a little bit and and Philippe Auclair was talking about this on a podcast I was listening to and basically he was saying the way that we get out of this situation is basically clubs right into the contracts that they're signing with players look if you play for this club then essentially your data is for for us and the league to 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 decide what to do with and then that kind of solves Opta's and sports radar's problem but when over the last 10 years we've had this evolution in soccer with more data and I think that's been a good thing we have a better understanding of of the sport as a, as a whole I'm sure Joe would agree with with that. So it would be a shame if we had to take steps back and and regress from that point. Yeah, um, a very complex question as we laid out from the outset. Thank you for asking it, Cigar. But let's uh, we can conclude by saying let's none of us do the heart shaped hands or we owe Gareth Bale money. Is that right? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Thanks. Okay, one last question for us is from Joshua McCarty, aka Albert Camus. Cool. Uh, in my best Seinfeld, vo- Seinfeld voice, says Joshua, what are the little flags that are exchanged between clubs before a game sometimes? That was the worst Seinfeld impression ever. I'm so sorry. Uh, that was what are the little flags that are exchanged between clubs before a game sometimes? What calls for them to be exchanged between a captain versus just a handshake? When did this tradition start? And do you suspect the flags are returned to the original team after the exchange off camera so they don't have to keep making little flags for each opponent? Uh, Joshua McCarthy aka Albert Camus aka the world's most cynical person I think we could uh, say there for that last uh, comment but um, these uh, uh, things Joe are known as penance sometimes known as friendship penance exchanged between teams as a mark of respect between the captains so for example at the start of the Euro 2020 final Giorgio Chiellini would have exchanged one of these friendship penance (laughs) as a mark of respect before he did the stuff he did, Joe. Yeah, I don't think there was much friendship in there, at least not not from Chiellini to England. Yeah, these are these are called penance, and 
basically they are handed off instead of handshakes because tradition says so. That's that's my best answer to that particular question. And this tradition started back at least, at least more than 55 years ago. So the earliest picture I could find, I couldn't find much about the specifics here, and so I'm hoping that someone else did. I saw a picture of a match between Celtic and Liverpool in 1966 where they were exchanging these pennants. And as far as I'm aware, teams keep them, right? So one, you'll often find, I shouldn't say often, you'll, you will occasionally find the pennants from big games, let's say Barcelona's playing Real Madrid, as an example. I don't know if I've never been to Barcelona's museum before, but they might end up putting a big rival or from a big game, a Champions League final, whatever, a pennant from that game from their opponents inside their trophy room or their club museum or whatever that looks like to basically be a memento from from that match. So it's been around for a long time. I do believe teams keep them afterwards to to even at even at the cost of having to print a bunch of little flags. I could not find for sure where or when this tradition started. Did anyone find the specifics on this? No, I didn't. I'm similar to you. So I, I, I found <laughs> pennants from the 60s um, going back to, to that decade. And it seems like if I had to guess and if I, if I had to uh, estimate why it, it, it seemed to start around that time, you have kind of the creation of the European Cup. So you have more teams traveling abroad and playing teams they wouldn't normally face. So pennants aren't really handed over in league games. It tends to be international games or, or Champions League games or European games. Basically, teams you're not going to face week in, week out, you would hand over a, a pennant to them. So I think that kind of the 60s is when that trend accelerated. I know for a fact that Sterling Albion, we were the first British team to play in Japan and we played uh, a, a number of Japanese teams on a, on a tour in 1966. And if you go into the boardroom at Fourth Bank at Sterling Albion, there's there's a series of pennants that we don't have a club museum. You know, we're not big enough for that. Our boardroom is essentially the club museum. And if you go in there, pride of place are those pennants from from Japan. So th- those are from as as far ago as as long ago. Excuse me, as um as 1966. So that tends to be the earliest pennants I could I could find. Oh, Albion big in Japan. We learn something new every day, Graham. I like that. Um, Taylor, it, it seems to me that the whole pennant situation, it's an extension of sort of international diplomacy in a way. Yeah. It's, it's similar to like heads of state exchanging gifts when they visit respect, their respective countries. Yeah, I think it's meant to be that mark of respect for the opponent prior to, to the match. And then it's meant to be a thing that can be commemorated and hung in the club museum or the, uh, the, the national team museum, whatever it may be. But yeah, it's meant to show the kind of respect for each other uh, before that game kicks off, which again, is definitely what Giorgio Chiellini was all about. Yeah, how, how do you know that in his culture, horse calling someone isn't a sign of respect? Like maybe that's, that's an Italian point. hug or like the yeah. Pisa peck or something you call I'm sorry. it? <laughs> yeah, sorry you hate cultural relativism, Ryan. I, yeah. I wish you had more respect for Italian beliefs. No, you mentioned it, Greg. I was getting on the train the other day and an old lady did horse collar me and pulled me exactly. back onto the platform. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe she just hated you. There's also that factor as well. That's also quite possible. <laughs> That's very possible indeed. Maybe she listens to the podcast and, uh, and hears the things I say about Chiellini. Anywho, I think that just about wraps up this edition of Listener Questions. Joe Lowry, thank you very much for answering Listener Questions. You got it, Ryan. Taylor Rockwell, same thing, but to you with your name. Right back at you, buddy. And Graham Rusman, pleasure as always, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. A piece of peck to you as well. <laughs> Listener, no piece of pecs uh, to you guys. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. bye.